Welcome to this podcast from Harvest Community Church of Huntersville, North Carolina, where our vision is to make disciples who make disciples. I'm your host, Liz Stefanini. How many of you remember show and tell at school? Remember that? You bring something in and show it. A a website had some uh, teachers respond to the question, what are some of the funny things or strange things that children brought to, to show and tell? And so the one little girl brought an avocado. And she began saying, hello, everyone, this is my avocado. It is very special to me. Uh, one teacher said a child brought a donut holder. It was to help you hold your donuts on your chin while you do things. So it had a strap and the donut would fit in it so you could be holding your donut and working otherwise. One teacher wrote this. My aunt was a teacher on an army base. And one of her students brought in an unexploded grenade, pin pulled and everything. School was evacuated and the bomb squad had to come in. How about taking a younger sister for show and tell? We had this, this lady writes, we had a nanny growing up and she had told my brother to walk himself to school. He was six and I was three. He walked me to his school announced to his teacher that I was his show and tell. The school called my mother and said, hello, we have Beanie Kig in the office right now. And she laughed and told them, Beanie Kig doesn't go to school, she's three. She said, yeah, we know, her brother brought her in for show and tell. (laughs) Today's message is titled Show and Tell. And the reason why is because as we enter into this Christmas season, God had some important truth to tell us. But he also didn't tell us just about important truth. He showed us someone who was important. I want to read some of the most famous verses that we read this time of year. Isaiah chapter 9 just verse, verses 6 and 7 right now. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. This is the word of God. Now, to set the stage for these famous verses, let's back up and look at Isaiah chapter 7 and 8. This is in Isaiah chapter 9. In chapter 7 and 8 of Isaiah, God warned his people that judgment was coming on them. Assyria, the nation to the north, was going to sweep in and invade their land. And it was a very dark time as they looked at that. 
When you come to the beginning of chapter 9, he predicted that God was going to send the Messiah to deliver them and to establish his kingdom. It looks like this. In the ancient world, you can see there Judah and Israel. That's all God's people. That's Israel. We first knew them as Israel, but at this stage of their history, 800 years or so before the coming of Jesus Christ, they were divided. It was a divided kingdom. So in the south, it was called Judah, the two tribes of Judah. And in the north, there were 10 tribes of Israel there in that orange or that yellow. But the powerful Assyria up north was getting more and more powerful and sweeping and taking more people captive. And that is exactly what Isaiah prophesied about. He told the people of God that because of their sin, that this nation was going to sweep in. And in fact, in the green, you see the Assyrian Empire did indeed sweep. Uh, and you notice there's no more Israel mentioned there. Those ten tribes just got completely scattered. This was a dark time. God's people were going to be judged for their sin, and he was going to use the evil nation of Syria to do it. Now, to set the stage even more, to help us really understand, before we actually look at Isaiah 9-6, let's look at the verses that lead up to it. So if you have a Bible there, uh, a hard copy or on a device or something, we'll also have the verses on the screen here for you. I want to go back to chapter 8, the last two verses of chapter 8, that tell about some of the bad consequences that are going to happen when this nation, Assyria, comes and takes the people captive. Verse 21, there's going to be an acute food shortage. Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. When they are famished, they will become enraged and looking upward will curse their king and their God. And verse 22 tells us there's no human solution. Then they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom, and they will be thrust into utter darkness. That's not a really happy scene, is it? <laughs> distress, hunger, gloom, utter darkness. But the very first word chapter 9 is a huge word. It's a small word, but it becomes a huge word and it changes everything. And the word is nevertheless, 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 there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. So the prophet Isaiah is saying, look, God is going to reverse this terrible darkness. He is going to reverse the curse that has been on them. Galilee was a, had a large mixed population and it was, it was a land that was considered to be a disgraced area. Even when you come to the time of the New Testament, Galilee was, was an area of disgrace. And Galilee was also the first area when Assyria moved into Israel. It was the first area they got captured. Now, if you fast forward hundreds of years 
and Jesus Christ comes on the scene, not just at his birth, but when he is living, when he starts his ministry. Matthew chapter 4, verse 12 said, when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he returned, you know where? To Galilee. The fact that Jesus Christ lived in Capernaum and returned to Galilee was the fulfillment of this prophecy right here in Isaiah. This light that was going to come to Galilee, this the people that were in distress, they were humbled, they were in distress, but it says in the future he will honor Galilee of the nations. Verse 2. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Now, darkness is a symbol for sin. It's a symbol for when people are separated from God, what they experience. And that that's what they had. They had darkness. And yet light is a picture of salvation. It shows through Jesus Christ, when God comes to save, God brings light into situations. And he is speaking and he's saying, look, th- this, this darkness that you have because of Assyria, it's going to change. But of course, as we follow along through the Bible, we find out that more than just a physical change took place. A spiritual change takes place through the Messiah as well. You know, people that are living in darkness, people that are living without Christ, they think they're living in light. They often think that, you know, I am educated. I am independent. I am living my life the way I want to live my life. And yet, the Bible says if they are, if they're not following God, they're living in darkness. And the mind that they think is open is really closed to spiritual truth. And yet light is what God sent through Jesus. Life without Christ, even if it has success, even if it has fun, even if it has friends, even if it has a great career, it's empty. And spiritually, when we look at a passage like this, we see that this physically happened to a nation And they were restored and saved. But it happened spiritually, and that's what we celebrate. It's Christmas. And the tenses here that are used are really interesting because it's spoken as if it's already happened. It's what we call the prophetic prophetic perfect. It hasn't happened yet. When Isaiah wrote these things, they were in bad, bad shape. Assyria was going to come and take them away and destroy them. And yet he speaks in chapter nine as if they've already been delivered. The people have seen, right? They've seen a great light. Well, the reason why it's that way is because the prophet is so sure that God is going to do what he predicts that it's spoken of as if it were already a done deal. It's already passed. It's already happened. It hadn't already happened when Isaiah wrote it, but obviously it's happened now as we look back on it in the year 2021. Isaiah is so excited about this prophecy that in verse 3, he just turns directly to God and he starts speaking directly to him. He says, you have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. Verse 4 describes another benefit. 
For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Now, this is alluding to Midian's defeat in Judges 6 and 7, when 130,000 Midianite soldiers were defeated by Gideon and a paltry number of 300 people. 300 little men defeated 130,000 soldiers. And God grants great victories through small things. God grants victories that you cannot explain humanly. There's no way to explain that 300 can defeat 130,000, right? And what he's about to tell them that's going to happen in Isaiah is also one of those things that there is no way to explain it except going, it's God. That is what he is talking about. Finally, in verse 5, there's going to be complete peace. Every warrior's boot is used in, you're used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. Now, having said all of this, he comes in verse 6 to tell us how it's going to happen. All of this great, all of this great material he's talked about, all of this deliverance from oppression, these enemies that they cannot defeat, nobody could defeat Assyria. All of the darkness, all of the gloom, all of the hunger, all of this. How is it going to happen? Is, is God going to raise up a mighty army? How is God going to do it? Verse 6 tells us the surprising way it's going to happen. For to us, a child is born. To us... A son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The birth of Jesus Christ fulfilled this prophecy from Isaiah chapter 9. What we celebrate, what we are celebrating now, what we're going to celebrate over the next few days, and we celebrate, we are celebrating the coming of the one who was promised hundreds of years before he was ever born. And it's, it's not a great mighty army rising up. It's not that God is going to send natural phenomenon that blows people away. It's a child. It's a son. What I want to do this morning is, for those of you, this, this is a message for those of you who are already following Jesus Christ. And it's also a message for those of you who may not be following him yet. And I want to help you understand who he is and how God does this. But for those of you who are following Christ, I want us to look at the way that God sent the Messiah. And there are some things that we can learn, not just about the fact that God did send a Messiah, but the way that he sent the Messiah. There are at least three things that we can learn. So this is on your outline. The first thing we learn is this. God's strategy for communicating truth is to incarnate it, not simply announce it. God's strategy 
for communicating truth is to incarnate it, not simply announce it. Verse 6, for to us a child is born and a son is given. That word that begins this verse, for, that for, that's explaining how all of the, what's going to be the cause of all of these things? It, it, it's because a, a child and a son. And, and child is put first in the Hebrew language in which this is written for emphasis. So it, the emphasis is, in contrast to mighty Assyria, God's answer is a child. God's going to send a child. And just like Gideon and Midian, great forces can be defeated by small things if God is with the small things. And that's what he's talking about. He's not just any son. He's the son of David. He's the heir to David's throne. And as such, the government will be on his shoulders. And he's also the son of God. Now, what do I mean when I use the word incarnate? When that's used as a verb, incarnate means to embody something in flesh, especially uh, like a human form. So there's no exact analogy, of course, but somebody might say, oh, this person really incarnates wisdom or they incarnate compassion. And what we mean is that in them, we really, really see it. So to incarnate is to take something that's not bodily And to put it in a body and show it so people can see it. And we talk about the incarnation of Jesus. We talk about he was incarnated. We're talking about how God took the form of a human body and became flesh in the person of Jesus. And God's strategy for communicating truth to us is not just to announce truth. He doesn't just announce it. He he incarnates it. He sent Jesus to live. John chapter 1 verse 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the father has made him known. In other words, Jesus made God known. There's a really interesting word that's used there in the original language. It means to explain. It means to interpret, to describe. We talk about, we, even when you study the Bible in a formal sense, we talk about a word exegesis that comes out of that original Greek word. Uh, if you're going to do exegesis in a passage, you're going to dive into the passage and you're going to study it and you're going to understand it and then you're going to be able to explain it. Uh, This is what Jesus did for God the Father. He made him known. He explained him to us. And all of this comes in these opening words of Isaiah 9, 6. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. Now, for each of these three things that we learn about God... I have an implication that I want to share with you. So for the fact that God's strategy is to incarnate truth and not just simply announce it, the implication is we should too. We should too. Those of us who are Christians are called to incarnate truth for others. Now, we can't do it in exactly the same way Jesus did, of course. There's, there was only one of him 
But we can use that as a model for us in terms of how we share the gospel with other people. And to me, this is a great follow-up on our series in Acts. For We just finished the book of Acts. And for week after week after week, we looked at the Apostle Paul and we talked about how Paul witnessed, about how Paul shared the gospel. Everywhere he went, he spoke the gospel. He told people about the gospel. And that was important. And that was that was what God called him to do, especially at that stage of the life of the church. The way the gospel message was going to be spread to new places was for people to go to these new places and tell about it. But that's only part of the story. The gospel is not just telling words to people. The gospel is showing Christ to people by your life. It's coming and living beside them. It's knowing them. It's loving them. Why did, why did Jesus, why didn't Jesus just come and go to the cross if it was going to be the cross? Why didn't he just come and Say, all right, everybody, I'm going to the cross to die. Why did he walk with disciples? Why did he eat with them? Why was he there when people died and when people got married and when people were happy and people were sad? It's because God was incarnating the truth. God was letting people see what he was like. God, who was invisible, was making himself visible to people. And that's what we're called to do too. Christians, some people, some Christians get really nervous when you say the word evangelism. Because they start thinking about, oh, I don't know if I'm going to have the right thing to say. I might say the wrong thing. They might ask me a question I might not know or, or whatever. And indeed, we share the gospel with our words, but... I think it's very, very important for us to share the gospel first with our lives, especially in this culture. Now, again, in a missionary culture, often when you go to a brand new territory, it, it, it's, it's, it's a different story. And it was a little different with, with Paul. But for those of us that live in America and live among people who have heard and seen all kind of things and all kind of crazy things. And some of them don't know if there's truth or don't believe in truth. It's very important for them to see the truth in us. For us to incarnate the truth. Jesus told his first disciples, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Some of you are thinking, well, wait a minute, I thought we weren't supposed to be doing our good deeds just for humans to see them. Of course, that relates to motives and that's true. But in terms of those who are in darkness... They need to see the light. They need to see good deeds. They need to know us. They don't need to just see a Christian that gets in his or her car and drives to church and think, oh, oh, that's what Christians do. Right? They need to see it. They need to live it. Uh, Let me ask you a question. Do you know your neighbors? Do you know the people that you're 
kids play with or they play sports with or do dance or you know things like that with is it just a name that you know or do you really know them do you do anything with them do you hang out with them ever do you help them with projects as as christians we can't incarnate truth from afar let me let me illustrate this i i like two or three people to help me here who aren't afraid of getting hit by a ball Okay, Corey, thank you. That'd be one. Uh, I appreciate that. Um, let's see, Thomas, I think that'd be a good one. If you guys will come up and get over here. Oh, no, there's a baby over here. Come on this side over in there, right there. In that, on the other side of that, yeah, those. So I thought about this, and I thought about sometimes we... Don't you want to get further away from me? <laughs> All right. I thought about truth and I thought about how sometimes the wrong idea can be, okay, those are the people that aren't Christians and so I've got to get the truth to them. So I'm going to take my truth bombs and I'm going to hit them. Don't let it hit you. Oh, I missed. Well, maybe I can get him with this one. No. And so I'm safe over here, right? I can tell, hey, you need to be saved. You need to be a Christian. And the idea is we think, oh, if I just lob the truth bombs at them, maybe they'll get hit. Right? And that is so far opposite incarnation. Incarnation is coming beside them and knowing them. And they know you. And they invite you to their birthday party. Right? Jesus was a friend of sinners. I mean, nobody was more holy than Jesus, more pure than Jesus. And nobody had more unholy friends than Jesus, it seems like. And so, incarnating the truth. All right, thanks, guys. Appreciate it. You, you didn't get hit. You did good. Thank you. <laughs> you know, maybe you, maybe you call them over. Maybe, maybe you hang out. Maybe, maybe you see your neighbors got a big work project. They're digging a ditch to do something, or they've got a big work project. Or maybe you know they play tennis, and you go play tennis together, or you invite them to, you know, go have coffee or something. It, it's incarnating truth. It's. It's it's not saying that we don't use words. But I can almost promise you that if you really love people. And you really value them as people and spend time with them where they are. There's a better, much, much, much better chance that they're going to be interested in hearing your truth. Right. They're going to be interested in learning uh, what it is that makes you tick. So that's. That, that's the first thing we learn about God. He, his strategy is not, not just to announce truth, but to incarnate it. Secondly, God values the human condition so much that he was willing to enter it. God was willing to enter it. We see that in the same, the same verse, the same phrases, child and son. In other words, God is in heaven. We are on earth. And so he's willing to enter our condition, 
Now, why, why this emphasis on the child? I, I think part of it is the larger context of Isaiah. In Isaiah, I mentioned to you that the nation of Syria was going to bring incredible distress on them. And Isaiah is a lot about arrogance and war and oppression. And in contrast to that, there are so many amazing things about God said in Isaiah, for instance, in chapter 40, verse 22, he sits enthroned above the circle of the earth and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. Isaiah is stressing the greatness and awesomeness of God. But I love what commentator John Ostwald says about this passage. He says, surely the book of Isaiah indicates frequently that God was powerful enough to destroy his enemies in an instant. Yet again and again, when the prophet comes to the heart of the means of deliverance, a childlike face peers out at us. For to us, a child is born. So rather than overcoming his enemies by bullying them, God chose another route, the route of humility, the route of vulnerability, the route of sending a child, of sending a son. These familiar words capture it, don't they, in Luke chapter 2? While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. So what's the implication? God values the human condition so much that he was willing to enter it. The implication is God understands. God understands us. God understands you. He understands what you're going through. He understands what you're thinking about. Hebrews chapter 2, since the writer says, since the children have flesh and blood, he too, speaking of Jesus, shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free all those and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God. And that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And I would say this, God understands you when you're tempted because Jesus was. God understands you when you feel rejected because Jesus was. God understands you when you are tired because Jesus was. God entered humanity. He did it and because he valued us so much, our condition so much. He's like, you know what? I'm going to live fully God and fully human. That's Jesus, fully God and fully human in one person. 
So again, think about what we're doing this morning. We're, t- we're, we're examining what we learn about how Jesus sent the Messiah. First of all, we learned that God's strategy for communicating truth was not just to announce it, but to incarnate it. Secondly, we learned that God values the human condition so much that he was willing to enter it. And then finally, the third thing we learn is that God knows we need more than just good human rulers. The second part of verse six says, and the government will be on his shoulders. Now in the ancient world, when a king ascended to the throne, they were given a lot of names and a lot of titles. For instance, in, in Egypt, five names would be given to the rising Pharaoh. And Isaiah is using that pattern, and he, he is going to give some names to this ruler that's going to rise up. And those are uh, the names that we will, Lord willing, be looking at next week, the Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. We're not going to get to those today. The plan is to do those next Sunday. But look what it says about him. He's a ruler. The government will be on his shoulders. This child, this child is going to be a ruler. This child is going to be in charge. Matthew chapter 2, another one of the. Christmas narratives surrounding the birth of Jesus. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. So what's the implication here of this one? The implication is a question that we should all ask. Is he, is he really your ruler? Is it just, you know, is it just theory to you that he's king of kings and lord of all? That he's the master, that he's the ruler, all the government's going to be in his shoulders. But what about your life and my life? What about our time and our money and how we choose to be entertained and what makes us happy and what what motivates us? Is he, is, is he your ruler? Mark chapter 8, verse 34, Jesus called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and the gospel will save it. So, The way that God sent the Messiah shows that he reaches people through incarnation of truth. That's the way God has chosen to do it. He's chosen not just to announce from afar, but to come with us and to live the truth and to show us the truth. He incarnates it. There's a couple, Saul and Pilar Cruz, who planted a church in Mexico City. And things were not going particularly well, not as well as they wanted to go in the church plant. And by his own admission, Saul realized that he was somewhat aloof from the people. And he wasn't necessarily 
satisfied with it, but he lived in an area uh, where there was a lot of poverty. And in fact, the church actually was planted on the edge of a large garbage dump in Mexico City. One Sunday morning, in while they were in their worship service, some people rushed in and said, oh, there's an emergency, we need help. And they're... <laughs> The local sewage system had broken and it was leaking and it was spreading. And the city had said apparently it was going to, it'd be three days before they could get to it. And so all of the people right there in that community were now suddenly at risk. And so that the pastor got an engineer from the church and started organizing, and the people just went out down into this area where sewage was leaking. And it took them 15 hours to gather everybody to get. So for 15 straight hours, they went there, they worked, they got in the muck, in the waste, in the disgusted or disgusting sewage to do something for their community. Three in the morning, they finally had it under control. They'd gathered sandbags, you know, and built, you know, put them together quickly, and they went and got it so that it wouldn't come and destroy the homes that were going to be right there. And at three in the morning, there were, there were people in the church who had, uh, you know, allowed the people to come back and they had boiled water and got it so they could clean this stuff off of them. Now, no human analogy can do full justice to the incarnation, I realize that. But in some ways, in some small way, that is a picture of a people who said, we're going to go incarnate truth for people, right? We're not just going to tell them they need to become Christians, but we are going to live among them. And we're going to get dirty among them so they can come to find Christ. That's the way God works. And that's what we see in Isaiah. And that's what I know God wants us to see in our lives today. Will you bow your heads with me, please? The first thing I want to say with your heads bowed as you think about this is whether you're here in person or you're watching our, our stream or our recorded message is that this is how much God loves you. This is what Christmas is about. It's, it's not about the lights and the bells and the whistles and the presents and family and all those things are fine. But this is what Christmas is ultimately about. It's about a God who loves you and said, I want to reach you. I want to forgive you of your sins. And the perfect Jesus who had no sin was made sin for us. He lived a perfect life. He lived a sinless life, but. The sin of humanity was placed on him at the cross. And there, in that moment, he paid for our sins. He paid for your sins. 
And the first invitation is to receive him as your savior. To believe that that was what you needed. That you are not going to heaven. That you are not going to be fulfilled. You are not going to be the full whole being that God created you to be. As long as you persist in living your life your way. But when you realize this is how much God loved me. And I will follow this Jesus. I will believe in him. I will commit my life to him. That will be the best Christmas you've ever had. And I invite you to open your hearts to that. For those of you who have opened your hearts, who is it that God wants you to incarnate truth to? Who is it that doesn't know the truth that God can use you with? I'm going to give you a minute, uh, and then Chad's going to share a special song with us. But I'm going to give you a minute to reflect on that, to think about that, and to pray for those people. Who can you incarnate truth for this Christmas? Thanks again for joining us today from Harvest Community Church. This podcast is also available on our website, harvestcharlotte.com. Please go there if you want to send a question or comment, learn more about our ministries, or find out how you can donate to support the podcast.